Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to wrap up his final thoughts on Jacob at Peniel, and then he's going to move into the text where Jacob meets Esau. Along the way, he's going to make some very helpful and creative observations on the text, including a look at what the sunrise means in this passage. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the life of Jacob as he meets Esau in Genesis 33. We have one last little thing to finish up on the Peniel incident, and this is just a little bit that's left from the last six or seven weeks of considering this. Verse 32 in the Hebrew text in the Fox translation, verse 31 in your English Bibles, says that the sun rose on him, that Jacob, as he crossed by Penuel, which is just another way of writing Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. It's the rising of the sun that we haven't made any comments on. The rising of the sun on Jacob on this occasion corresponds in a very general way to the face of God as it is said in the passage itself. Jacob says, I have seen God face to face and my life has been spared. The sun rose on him. A parallel kind of passage, I've got it written down here, is in Exodus 33, 18-20, where Moses asked God to show him his glory. Now, you know, the glory is a visible, shining thing in the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 2, God sends the Spirit into the world and says, let there be light. The glory is associated with the Holy Spirit, and it's this shining forth. When the glory cloud appears, it's full of light. It's a cloud that has fire in it. So particularly at, well, you know how a cloud looks on a sunny day, it's bright and white, and at night if it's got fire in it, it's bright. That's the glory. So chapter 33 of Exodus, verse 18, Moses says, pray let me see your glory, and he said, I myself will cause all my goodness to pass in front of your face, and I will call out the name Yahweh before your face, that I show favor to whom I show favor, I show mercy to whom I show mercy. For he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Well, see, there's a sense in which Jacob says he has seen God face to face, and yet he's lived. Now, did he see clearly? No, because this happens at night. Remember we said way back when that part of the reason the angel says, let me go, the sun's about to come up, is that if Jacob sees God face to face, really, He's toast, because nobody can see God face to face and live. So to spare Jacob's life, the angel of Yahweh says, you need to let me go, the sun's going to come up, you can't see me and live. But here at dawn, when there's a little bit of light, but not a whole lot, he begins to see what God looks like. Now this business of the rising of the sun, as you cross the river into the promised land, is picked up later on. Let me just briefly show you in Judges where this comes up again because it's important in Judges. Just remember the scenario. 
we're at a river here, and Jacob is crossing this river, and at the same time, the sun comes up as he comes across, as he crosses Penuel, crosses this area, which is by the Jordan. Actually, remember, he's already on this side, so I guess I do that wrong, but we'll just make this Penuel, which is near the river. The river's actually over here. He's already crossed it. And the sun comes up. Now, does that association come up later on in the Bible? Yeah. After the battle of Megiddo, the first battle of Megiddo, another one in the book of Kings, in Judges chapter 531, Deborah says, Thus let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. So the sun bursting up over the horizon is a picture of strength and might. All shadows flee before it. And she is saying, May all your enemies perish, and may those who love you be like Jacob. Because although Jacob limps and doesn't have any outward strength, yet he now has sunrise strength. Well, when that comes up, that begins to be fulfilled in chapter 8, verse 31 of Judges. Gideon crosses the Jordan River and pursues the wicked Zeba and Zalmanah and defeats them, and then he captures them and then in verse 13, and here your translation probably is obscuring it for you, chapter 8 for 13, Gideon, son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, this says. But that's another word for sun. At the rising of the sun, Gideon returns and crosses the Jordan as the sun rises. So Gideon, here is another Jacob, and he is in fulfillment of Deborah's prayer a generation or two earlier, about two generations earlier, that those who would be mighty and defeat God's enemies would be like the sunrise. But then this is continued in Judges in the most pregnant and powerful fulfillment of this, which is what? What's the next sunrise event in Judges? Occupies four chapters. Samson... Samson's name means son, Shemesh, Shemshon. So Samson is the son. And Samson, as the son who offers marriage to this Philistine girl, if she will convert and trust him, she doesn't. So she gets killed. Samson is the mighty bridegroom who is like the son. And Samson, as the sunrise who has strength, of the powerful son who offers marriage lies behind language in Psalm 19, which you know. It says that the heaven, the firmament, the blue sky, in the blue sky he has placed a tabernacle for the sun, and the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. See, Samson is the strong man and the bridegroom. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, its circuit to the other end, and there's nothing hid from its heat. And so, if you're like the sun, there are those who need to hide from its heat. And I guess I might as well make this point here. If the sun is out and it's just boiling hot, what happens if a cloud comes in front of the sun? It gives you some cool, right? Can you make your own cloud 
to hide in, to be sheltered from the sun? Sure, you can make a tent or a lean-to. The Hebrew word for cloud is sukkah. And the Hebrew word for a shed or lean-to is sukkah. And what we call the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles is the Feast of Clouds. That's what Sukkoth means. We're going to find in just a little bit that Jacob is going to come to a place called Sukkoth, where he makes tent. When Israel came out of Egypt, they came to a place called Sukkoth, which means sheds. But the idea is that they have little clouds because the sun is in their midst and the clouds help them as they dwell in the presence of the sun. And we will come back to that when we get to Jacob coming to Sukkoth, and I'll show you a little bit more about this whole Feast of Clouds business and how God's glory cloud is in the midst of Israel, and we're little clouds around it at the Feast of Clouds, at the Feast of Tabernacles. But that's something I thought I could mention here. The strong man, Samson, coming up like a bridegroom. No one can stand before him. The heat is there. Ultimately, this is the Messiah. And it points back to Jacob. Well, if this is the rising of the sun, this theme of sunrise receives its final expression in the Hebrew Scriptures in Malachi 4, speaking of the coming day of the Lord. Behold, day is coming, burning like a furnace, there's the heat, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says Yahweh of armies, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. You will tread down the wicked, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall, and you will tread down the wicked, they will be ashes. See, the blazing heat of the day. See, day is when the sun comes up, and it's hot, and nothing is hid from its heat, and it sets everything ablaze like chaff, and the wicked will be like ashes. Reduce to ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says Yahweh of armies. And so, this is a picture of the coming of the new covenant on the day of Pentecost when we get tongues of fire coming on people and starting to put the world on fire. And the world continues to be on fire today, wherever the gospel goes forth and burns up the old ways, purifies the world, and establishes the new creation. So, Jesus is the son of righteousness. Ultimately, Jesus is the fulfillment of Jacob. The sunrise is fulfilled with him. It runs through this whole theme. This business of seeing God's face like the sun is what we call in theology the beatific vision, the vision of the beauty of God and that which glorifies us. And being brought face to face with God, I've got down here, is the highest point of human maturation. And this just carries forth and completes the theme we were looking at the last several times, that there are these stages of growth and maturation in the kingdom and in our lives. We go from being children to priests to kings to prophets. And God works through parents with children. Children identify their parents with God, and rightly so. I mean, you outgrow that. But the first father that you have, the first mother that you have, are the ones that are right there. Now, you come into the church, and in the church you're introduced to your supreme father, and you get the church as your larger mother, and that's by baptism. But then you go back home, and the child's actual experience is that these giant human beings who talk to them and say no, 
and hold him and love him and all the rest are the way God manifests himself to children. There's no escaping that. There's absolutely no way around that. They either do a good job or a bad job of manifesting God to our children, but that is what we are doing. And the children will outgrow it. But that's where it starts. And then as we proceed, in Genesis it's all fathers and sons, remember? All these stories are about fathers and sons. They all shadow forth the father-son relationship and the Trinity to us. When we get to Exodus, God works through his law with the priests. Again, it's not face-to-face. You have God, parents, children. You have God, law, and a nation of priests. And then God, in the kingdom period, speaks through the prophets to the kings. God gives his law once and for all. It's written down there for the priests. The priests can read it, study it generation after generation, because all the priests are going to be scribes. They will know how to read and write. That's the difference between them and everybody else in Israel. The law tells them what to do. God is here. The law is in between. There's a mediator, and they are here. Then something more dynamic comes with the kings. With the kings, you've got the prophets in between God and the people and the king. And the prophet will come Different prophets at different times. And what are the prophets called? What do the kings call the prophets? What are they supposed to call them? Whispering doesn't do any good. It doesn't reach me. Nah, seers is good, but not good enough. If I make you think about it long enough, you'll remember it when I say it. Is that right? Is that the pedagogical technique? My blank, my blank, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. When the, when the king sees the prophet, he says, My something, my something, the chariot of Israel and its horses. When Saul is about to be anointed king, he falls down and speaks in tongues or something. And they say, Is Saul among the prophets? And who is their blank? And who is their father? Saul is adopted by Samuel as his father because he becomes part of the company of the prophets and the prophet has Samuel as their father. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. The prophets are fathers to the king, just as Joseph was a father to Pharaoh. Remember, Joseph says, I am a father to Pharaoh. God says to Abraham, you'll be the father of many nations. Right away, Joseph is a father to Egypt. But then God speaks directly to the prophets. When you become a prophet, you are maturing, you're getting closer, and God speaks face-to-face. He speaks not quite face-to-face with the other prophets, but we saw last week how he consults the prophets, like Amos says, I don't do anything without consulting the prophets first. God always consults the prophets. And then we have the statement in Numbers 12 that Moses, as the supreme prophet of the Old Covenant, God doesn't speak in dark visions like Zechariah. There's a dark vision for you, but face-to-face. And we're moving toward Jesus when we see God face to face. And then Jesus goes away and we're moving forward to going to heaven and the end of history when heaven and earth are joined again. And that blue sky that you see out there right now is gone. It wasn't there to start with. Originally, God made the heaven and the earth and then he put the firmament in between them. And someday that firmament will be gone and we'll look up and you'll see heaven. There won't be any veil in between but right now the marriage isn't completely consummated because it's still a veil. So we've got our groom is in heaven and the bride's here. And someday, symbolically speaking, of course, that will go and 
the full celestial marriage will come. And the beatific vision where we see God face to face in Jesus. So all of that is here. This is just part of that theme. I wanted to kind of draw that chord through the Bible so that you see that this image of the power of the sun rising in association with Jacob, even though that Jacob is now limping, he has a greater power, sunrise power. That's traced through. And also the seeing God face to face and the face like a sun is also a theme that runs through the Bible. And it's here in this passage. And I would have been remiss not to point it out. Although it would have been nice to just have one eight-hour session and do the penile story all at once instead of coming back here every week and trying to get back in the groove. I hope this hasn't been too confusing because now we're going to move on to the next chapter and get back into the text. And we won't have to spend the kind of detailed time on the rest of the Jacob story that we have here at this wrestling with God. Let me read chapter 33, 1 to 16. Actually, there's an error in your notes. That should say 33, 1 to 16. And I'll read from the Fox translation. And Yaakov lifted up his eyes and saw. And there was Esau coming, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maids. And he put the maids and their children first, and Leah and her children behind them, and Rachel and Yosef behind them. And he himself advanced ahead of them. And he bowed low to the ground seven times until he had come close to him, to his brother. And Asav ran to meet him, and he embraced him, and he flung himself upon his neck, and he kissed him, and they wept. And he that is Asav lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, and he said, What are these to you? And he said, The children with whom God has favored your servant. And the maids came close, they and their children and bowed low and Leah and her children came close and bowed low and afterward Yosef and Rachel came close and bowed low and he that is Asad said what to you is all this camp that I have met and he said to find favor in my Lord's eyes and Asad said I have plenty my brother let what is yours remain yours Jacob said no I pray pray if I have found favor in your eyes then take this gift from my hand for I have, after all, seen your face as one sees the face of God, and you have been gracious to me. Pray take my blessing that is brought to you, for God has shown me favor, for I have everything. And he pressed him, and he took it. And he, Esau, said, Let us travel on, and I will go in front of you, literally. And he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and the sheep and the oxen are suckling in my care. If I were to push them for a single day, all the animals would die. So pray let my Lord cross on ahead of his servant, while as for me I will travel slowly, at the pace of the gear ahead of me and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord to say ear. And Asab said, Pray let me leave with you some of the people who are mine. And he said, For what reason? May I only find favor in my Lord's eyes. So Asav started back that same day on his journey to Seir. That's a breaking point in the next statement. And Yaakov traveled to clouds, Sukkoth, and he built a house there. And then he's going to live there for about 15 years. So we really want to isolate that verse, and I'll show you why right now. Here on page 110, we have a review 
I've thrown up again our first chiastic structure of the passage. And you'll notice where we are now is down here at K prime. Esau an inheritance Jacob received. And that matches up here with K, Esau an inheritance Jacob rejected. That's where we've moved back to now when Rebekah deceives Isaac and Jacob is cast out. And we have debate over the inheritance with Esau. And this is where Isaac steals all the inheritance from Esau and gives 100% of it to Jacob. Because he had intended to steal it all from Jacob and give it all to Esau. But Isaac completely disinherits Esau through his sinful attempt to completely disinherit Jacob. Now here in the passage we just read, Jacob makes that back up to him by giving him a lot of inheritance that Isaac has stolen from him. And we'll consider that in due course. And then you see the passage where we are. Just interesting to notice when we get to it, I have added in here J-A before K, where Isaac names a well, and the next thing that happens here is that down at J-A prime is that Jacob names this place Succoth, which means clouds. And we'll want to think about a relationship between wells, water below, and clouds, which hint at waters above when we get to it and consider what has happened in the meantime that moves us from waters below to waters above. But that's where we are as we move back out. The sons have been born and now we're coming back into the land after our exile out of the land. And similarly, we saw that there is another outline of the passage which is not quite as full but which puts the wrestling with God at the center. And here we are, the two H sections correspond. You'll notice the I penile theophany is at the center. And right before that, we had Laban coming out to meet Jacob, and now we've got Esau coming out to meet Jacob. And what are the parallels between those? The parallels are instructive because they show us important contrast. Notice I've got them here on the middle of the page. Laban sets out after Jacob. Esau sets out to meet Jacob. God speaks to Laban and warns him. Nothing like that is recorded here. We don't have God coming to him and saying, don't do anything evil to Jacob. Don't speak good or evil against him. Don't try to bring charges against him. At the same time, Esau has clearly changed. And you could see the gifts that are sent to Esau as somewhat parallel to God coming to Laban and warning him. Well, Laban shows up and accuses Jacob. He doesn't do so directly because God has threatened to kill him if he does, but he tries his best to make Jacob look bad. Esau, on the other hand, welcomes Jacob. It is 100% positive here. Esau can't do enough good things for Jacob. Laban claims the flocks and daughters and sons. Remember, he says, these flocks are mine, these daughters are mine, these children are mine, everything here is mine, but there's nothing I can do about it because your God threatened to kill me, so I guess I'm just going to have to let you steal all this stuff and run off with it. Of course, remember we're in a law court setting there and all the other men know that that's just a lie, but they let this whole fool bluster. Remember that if you take the name Laban and reverse it to Nabal, what do you get? What does Nabal mean? Fool. And uh, that's important because every Jewish reader would have known that. This, this old fool, I let him talk. But he claims everything. Well, Esau doesn't. Esau says, man, look at all these kids you've got. This is great. Hey, 
Hey, little brother, man, look at all these kids you've got. I thought you'd never get married. Now you're back here with four women. So, in the Laban story, we make a covenant to try to keep us apart. May the Lord watch between us when we're apart from each other because I don't trust you and you don't trust me. Here, Esau wants to travel with Jacob. He wants to keep him close. Which is a little bit of an ambiguity here, as we'll see. And then at the end of the story, Jacob and Laban part. And here, Jacob and Esau part. So there's parallels between the two stories, which are natural parallels. In other words, if you come to meet somebody and you have a conversation with them and you make an agreement and you part, that story is going to have the same form no matter who it happens to. So these parallels are, in a way, they're kind of trivial because naturally this is what would happen if you meet somebody, talk with them, settle things, and part. But at the same time, in this literary structure of the passage, they stand as a monumental contrast. Because in between, God has wrestled with Jacob and said, I've been wrestling with you for 97 years, and now I'm not going to wrestle with you anymore. Because when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes his enemies to be at peace with him. And from now on, all the people that used to wrestle with you, God says, I was wrestling with you through Esau in the womb. I was wrestling with you through your father. I was wrestling with you through Laban. All those people who used to wrestle with Jacob aren't going to wrestle with him anymore. He's going to have some new, more difficult challenges. But the old problems are going to go away because Jacob has prevailed. And God says, you are mature enough. You've learned everything I wanted you to learn through those wrestling matches. So who knows what Esau had in mind when he came out with his 400 men. He came out several days ago. Maybe he was intending to do something bad and God appeared to him and changed his heart. Or maybe he just was a man who lived for the moment. We know that he is. If Esau's hungry, he can't wait two hours for somebody else to cook him a meal. He sells his whole birthright for the meal that's right in front of him. Well, maybe he was all angry at Jacob, and then when he saw Jacob bowing down to him seven times and he saw all these kids, he just instantly changed his mind and melted. Or maybe Esau has been spiritually regenerated and he's in heaven today. The New Testament tells us that God hated Esau and loved Jacob, but Paul brings that up as a way of pointing to the fact that God chooses, and he goes on to say God chooses in the ultimate sense, but he never says that as for Esau particularly, that the after part of Esau's life doesn't show any different attitude on God's part. Some people have even argued that, that Paul refers to Jacob and Esau to establish the point that God chooses. And having established that, Paul can go on and talk about predestination, but in the actual text itself indicates that Esau is converted because he's so nice to Jacob here. I think there's reason to hold off trying to evaluate Esau's spiritual condition at the end of his life. We don't know what it is. It could be that God saves him later on and that Paul is just referring to the first part of the story to make his point that God chooses. At the same time, there's no indication of spiritual awareness on Esau's part here. The story reads very easily simply at an emotional level. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. I wanted to see that contrast. I wanted to see the story in context that Laban is still out to get Jacob. And if it wasn't for all these other men that he brought along with him to form a law court, Laban might well have done Jacob harm. But he couldn't. Esau, on the other hand, it comes out with 400 men. It looks bad, but all of a sudden it's not bad. 
And whether Esau had changed his mind over the last 20 years, or whether he changed his mind all at once, or whether God appeared to him and warned him, we don't know. But he's changed, and sometimes the silences of the Bible are important. We're not told why he changed his mind. Because God wants us to understand that what's changed is Yahweh is not going to wrestle with Jacob anymore. And if the text went off and told us a bunch of stuff about now over these last 20 years Esau had this experience and that experience and then like a novel. And so when we get to this point we totally understand the changes in Esau's life and how he's become a Buddhist and so he's nonviolent or whatever's happened to him, you see. If we were told all that, it would draw away our attention from the real reason. The real reason is God isn't wrestling with Jacob anymore. And the reason Esau wrestled with Jacob in the womb and for 77 years is that God was wrestling with Jacob through Esau. And since God says, you've won the match, you're now mature, I'm not going to wrestle with you anymore, you're strong enough, you're ready to come into the land, then Esau isn't going to do it anymore. God isn't going to wrestle through Esau. So that is the change. And whatever his psychology has happened to Esau would be interesting to know. We can find out in heaven. If he's there, we can ask him. I suspect he's not there. But we can ask Jesus and say, what happened to Esau? Maybe Jesus will say, well, he came out there intending to kill Jacob, but when he saw all those kids, I just moved in his heart and he said, oh, I can't kill these women and kids. And he melted and I made him feel excited to see Jacob. Or maybe something else. We don't know. Can't psychologize the text. We don't have enough information what we're supposed to notice is that God has changed how he's dealing with Jacob. So, there is no clever chiastic structure to this passage, nothing that I can wow you with in the way of intricate parallels or the number of words repeated so many times. You know, the word Esau is not repeated exactly four times. The word children doesn't show up exactly twelve times. None of those things we've seen in some of the earlier passages are here as literary structuring devices. Instead, we just have a progression of events. Esau receives Jacob in verses 1 to 4. Esau receives Jacob's family in verses 5 to 7. Esau receives Jacob's gift in verses 8 to 11. Esau offers to bring Jacob to Seir. And that Jacob cannot go there in verses 12 to 14. And then Esau offers to protect Jacob on the way in verses 15 to 16. So this passage is all about Esau and this byplay of the older and younger son comes back into play here. So first of all, Esau received Jacob, and that's in verses 1 to 4. I'll read it again using more common pronunciation. Jacob lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there was Esau coming, and with him 400 men. You see, now we're repeated, the 400 men thing. We had that in the previous chapter Oh, your brother Esau is coming and 400 men with him and Jacob is scared to death. Okay, well, he's going to kill my wife and kids. And Jacob wrestles with God all night long and then that wrestling in prayer is transferred into an actual physical wrestling match. But the actual wrestling is, I'll give him all of my sheep and flocks and goats and everything, but please spare my wives and children. That's what really counts. That's the wrestling. Well, here it is. We're reminded of it. He's coming out with 400 men. What's it going to be? So tension mounts. But this changed. What looked like a threat and might have been a threat is now something else. The 400 men are brought out to escort Jacob 
through the land to protect him and help him out. Now we have an order of march here, and we notice that Jacob puts himself first. Some of the commentators say that this is a change from chapter 32 where Jacob was going to be last, but that is misreading the chapter. Chapter 32 does not indicate that Jacob intended to hang back when he met Esau because it's dealing with a different situation there. Jacob goes first, and he renders homage to Esau. He divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maids. He put the maids and their children first, Leah and her children behind them, and Rachel and Joseph behind them. So, again, depends on whether you want to make Jacob out to be a bad guy or a good guy. We're not taking him as a bad guy in his class because the Bible says Jacob was a complete, mature, and perfect man from his youth. And so they say, well, first of all, okay, here's Esau. They had the maids and Leah and Rachel. And, of course, Jacob himself is first. And that the reason that Jacob does this is that Oh, if Esau starts slaughtering the maids and their children, maybe Rachel and Leah can escape because he loves them more. And if Leah doesn't escape, maybe at least Rachel will escape because he loves her the most. Well, I tell you, I think there's a much simpler and more obvious explanation that is implied in the text. And that is, Jacob is coming with his household to present them before Esau and render homage to Esau, and he does it in climactic order. These are the least, so they bow first. These are the second to the least. Leah is a full wife, and so her children are full children. They bow next. And Rachel is, remember, she's first wife. And so as first wife, she and Joseph, Benjamin, remember, isn't born for 20 years or so. Rachel and Joseph, they come last. The queen is brought last first the serving women and then the second class queen and then the number one queen is brought in and this is not because he's afraid that anything is going to happen fact is if you got 400 men there and they start killing these women they're going to get them all now, Rachel is running with a six year old Joseph they're not going to run fast enough to escape 400 men so that kind of argument that some of the commentators use is silly no, this is a formal presentation before Esau, who is recognized by Jacob as, in some sense, his superior, King Esau. And Jacob comes and renders homage to him and has his family do the same. Now, we have a little twist here. It says, verse 4, Esau ran to meet him. Well, notice, Esau can run. Jacob doesn't run anymore. And we can psychologize this. You make a Hollywood movie out of it and... Jacob is there limping, and this man is running to him. doesn't know if he's going to run and fall on him and kill him or not. But there's certainly nothing you can do. You can't run away. <laughs> These guys are twins. They both run at the same speed. So if Jacob had been able to run, he might have run away, and Esau might never have caught him. But now he can't run away. He has to face it. But Jacob comes and embraces him. And I want you to understand, because you can't see it in English, that embrace and wrestle, where Jacob wrestles with God, are the same words. They're not quite the same, but they are so close that there's no doubt that it's intended as a connection. Because he says, I've seen your face, Esau, like the face of God, and so for Esau to grab him and hold on to him is just like God grabbing and holding on to him and wrestling with him. 
embrace is Chabak and wrestle is Abak. And nobody reading this in Hebrew would miss the connection. So, yep, he's been wrestling with God, and guess what? He's been wrestling with Esau all the way back in the womb and up till now, and this wrestling has now become an embrace. It's no longer grabbing hold of somebody to fight him off, but now it's grabbing hold of somebody to draw him close. So that's not only there conceptually, but you can hear it in the Hebrew words if we can hear Hebrew. <laughs> and you can hear it a little bit today. Habak, embrace, Habak, wrestle. Then he kisses him. So he flung himself upon his neck and kissed him. Kissing in the Bible is affection. Sometimes it also implies forgiveness. And think of the prodigal son or the lost son. And when he comes back, his father runs to him, falls on his neck and kisses him. There's an implication of forgiveness there. And I think that we don't want to leave that out here. There is an implication of forgiveness as well as acceptance. The fact is you can't accept somebody if you haven't forgiven them. So the kiss is that. The kiss is a sign of unity. And then they weep together. Their souls are joined. And after that, they're able to talk. Then we find that Esau receives Jacob's family, verses 5 to 7. Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children and said, What are these to you? How do these relate to you? And he says, These are children with whom God has favored your servant. I want you to notice this word favor. Jacob might have said, These are children with whom God has blessed your servant. The word bless occurs about 88 times in Genesis and the word favor only about 15 times. But it occurs about five times in this chapter. Now, don't hold me to those numbers if you go home and count them up this afternoon. But that's roughly it from what I remember reading in the commentaries. And the commentaries point out that throughout this passage, with one exception, Jacob says, God favored me instead of God blessed me. And they say, well, maybe one of the reasons is he doesn't want to use the word bless <laughs> and remind Esau the fact that he had stolen, quote, quote, Esau's blessing. Well, we don't think he stole it. God had commanded right from the start that Jacob was to get it, and it was Isaac who was trying to steal it from Jacob. But nevertheless, they say he doesn't want to bring up the word blessed because why mess up this nice reunion by souring things? But as a matter of fact, he does bring up the word blessed in verse 11. And that's the climax of the narrative. Pray receive the blessing that I have brought to you. And I think the word favor is used in the rest of the passage so that when we get to the word blessing, it stands out. Because this whole passage has to do with Jacob blessing Esau with the blessing that Isaac had denied him, which we'll review when we get to it. Jacob uses favor, thus, instead of what we would expect blessed, favor is used throughout, while blessed is used only once climatically. And then Jacob's family does homage to Esau here. The maids come close, they and their children, and bow low. This is very formal. Presentation at court. And imagine this now. We don't know how this looked. If Esau is still just standing there with Jacob by himself, or if these men have formed up around him. Either way, this is very formal. They come and they bow, they move on, the next one's come and bow, all acknowledging, bowing before the leader of this clan, this sheikdom, Seir. Now, <laughs> this is where it starts to become fun, and we'll pick this up next week. Chapter 27, 29. Isaac says to Jacob, thinking that he's speaking to Esau, May people serve you. May tribes bow down to you. Be a great one to your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Now, 
Over the course of history, eventually Esau and Edom will bow down to Jacob. But here is Jacob and his family and his clan who are bowing down to Esau. And Esau is the Gibor, the great one here. And we have to ask why that is. And the answer is, Rebekah had mixed the goats into one meal so that everything that's true of Jacob is going to be true of Esau and everything that's true of Esau is going to be true of Jacob. They both received the same thing, although it comes to Jacob primarily because he's the one who sneaks in, dressed like Esau, smelling like Esau. You see, the two sons are combined. The two foods are combined. It's Jacob's food, kids of the flock, but spiced like Esau's gamey food. It's two goats for the two sons. It's Jacob dressed in Esau's clothes so he smells like him. It's Jacob's skin with goat hair like Esau over on top of it. Everything is combined. And it's because of that combining that later on in history there's this give and take. There is a time when the righteous person, here Jacob, renders outward homage and cooperates with the wicked person, who I think Esau still basically is, and it is because they're put together. The clan of Esau, as we saw, and I'll come back to this next week, the Edomites are the counterfeit priests. They're circumcised. They're the counterfeit priestly nation. They're circumcised, but they don't limp. They don't have humility. And the Israelites are the true priestly nation because they're circumcised to be made priests, but they also limp. They have helplessness and humility and have to depend on God. But there's this byplay of Jacob and Esau, and it's come up here again, and we'll look at it next time. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.